Okay, hello, and thank you for uh, watching episode 32 of Dan Oates Says So. My guest this week is a filmmaker, and he and I first crossed paths in, I believe, 89 uh, when he was doing Sold Out, his zine, which was a slicker piece of production and a nicer piece of work than you typically saw in your local record store. Um, the same could be said of his current film. Um, he, is the, he is the filmmaker of Dope, Pavement, and Hookers, and I like this part, the real and imagined history of Detroit hardcore. So Otto Bluey, thank you for doing this, sir. Thanks for having me, Dan. Absolutely. Um, one thing I also want to thank you, in 1989 or 88, you let me sleep on the floor of your house when I was in California. That was a really nice, nice thing. There, there was there was something decidedly flop house about my joint. You know, yeah, a lot I think of it, it seemed a bit transitional, but it wasn't. I'm not. I'm a guest, so I, I don't say nothing. <laughs> I, I, I believe by then I already owed you. You gave us bigger type on the front cover of Sold Out than you gave the Chromax. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was those are happy times. Happy there time. There you go. Yeah. No. Um. No. I. There was nothing better than uh getting to know people that way back then. I. I. I, I wonder in the younger, you know. Mm hmm scene which is very real though i'm not in touch with it as i should be yeah. whether that's still the lifestyle whether people are still crashing in each other's space and you know i often wonder how similar it is to what we grew up with you know i think it's just just to sort of not to take up time on that but i think the times are different technology is sort of facilitates things and i think um people might not be compelled as to connect directly as much anymore right which is um, probably but, right so yeah. the second half of the movie's title the real and imagined history of Detroit hardcore, yeah, is just <laughs> fantastic. It's very, it's very self-aware and very self-effacing. What inspired it? Well, I think what it is is what inspired it was um, a, a good part of the story. Where, where uh, it was very difficult to find consensus in terms of on what happened um, back, you know, almost 35, 40 years ago. And what's interesting is the film is also is a much as much about you know sort of the way memory works the way sort of mythologizing works the way many people can remember the same thing or imagine the same thing all slightly differently and i think what happens is in, in the film there you get certain participants some of them are a little more elastic with the truth mm -hmm. and it makes for great storytelling that might be the most diplomatic frame framing i've ever heard <laughs> anyway go on <laughs> But a few, a few of them are like in that way, and it's something that you have to sort of understand that, okay, when you hear that person tell something that way, the next person comes in with a bit more of a sober assessment of what happened at the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. You get a sense that there's no real sort of uh, collective kind of truth. I mean, we're just dealing with details at this point in time. But it goes to show that, okay, a lot of this is still people hang on to that period in their life. Yeah. with a lot of sort of uh they still remember it in sort of widescreen and cinema scope in mm -hmm. that you know the way it was back then but it wasn't really that way when I mean, you talk to some people you know it, it's sort of it was probably a lot more fascinating in hindsight not to say it wasn't fascinating to begin with but that's just the nature of storytelling that's the nature of you know recollection that's the nature of mythologizing self-mythologizing so the film has a bit of fun with that and i put it in the title only because you can't walk away from seeing this film with a sort of um sort of how would you say absolute sort of fact and, and the well, film actually deals with that fact that there isn't really even possible to get collective sort of consensus on some things that happen it was a, how, it was a brilliant move and it attracted me to the film even before i realized hey i know this fucker like you know <laughs> um there's an interesting thing like we're in we're in the era in the 2020s suddenly where where documentation and 
archiving of the 80s in particular yeah is a really high premium on it i mean one of the more interesting things about interviewing Ian Mackay this year is that he mm -hmm. has sort of become master archivist and he's fiercely defensive of it as something that's crucial and important rather yeah. than something that's sentimental. I think your film is largely sentimental, but that makes it lovely. But I think there's there's a sentimentality because there's a human element to the experience that a lot of these people share. It's part mm -hmm. of growing up. It's part of like a part of their life where they're still, they still had one foot, uh, there's still an element of innocence there. And okay. they were kind of, figuring it out as they're going along and learning the hard way and that's why the film also deals with just doesn't deal with what happens on stage but it happens a lot with what deals off stage for better and for worse the camaraderie as well as the you know the introduction of like drug use the introduction mm -hmm. of violence the introduction of um emotional issues suicide in some case mm -hmm. so all these things are, are part of someone's coming of age and i right. think you know uh the sentimentality there it's not nostalgia it's just sort of people looking back at like you know it was a kind of a, a, a beautiful but a tough way to come of age for a lot of these kids you know and they kind of you know by the time they came point, across I, as such what's that so that it, it came across exactly that way yeah and, and i think that's that's the important thing because it's the film also aims to be a little more universal so that if you watch this movie and you don't really care or know about punk rock or hardcore punk or 80s uh the 80s sort of uh, you know transition there um you can still watch it on a sort of uh human interest level and relate to it in some way about how it was maybe growing up at a certain point in time where everything was still so fluid and confusing and you're kind of you're kind of fumbling through it that's what the scene was really about i mean these kids really detroit uh, like one of the participants told me uh, off camera was always like 30 days behind what was happening in the rest of the country. And, but what was at the same, you know, you know some kid would go out West, see a show at the Mabby right. Hay or whatever, go to a skate park in LA, they come back home to all the kids about Detroit and it'd be in Detroit 30 days later. But the thing is what's happening is in Detroit, it kind of, they had to, it was a self-invented scene in that level in terms of what, in practical terms. Well, it's funny. People might might find it odd. You you sort of you 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 refer to Detroit. Third person isn't the word I'm looking for, but in a sort of removed sense. Yeah. And uh, for that reason, just real quick, I'm going to put a flashlight on your accent. You're not All a right. Detroiter. I'm not. I live I live eight minutes eight minutes away from Detroit. You know what I mean? It's but to, go ahead and tell them where. Uh, Windsor, Ontario, which is you pretty much you know you know you're carrying the boot and the uh, a boot and the roof and whatever I carry. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but Detroit, I mean, Windsor is effectively like the sort of the gun-free socialist suburb of Detroit, and that's okay. all that. But culturally, I mean, you know, I was I was born in Toronto, raised in Windsor, but formed in Detroit, just based upon my experience of being so involved with, you know, music there and growing up there. Uh, but one thing back to the title, though, the, sure. the, uh, the real imagined history is a very important part because it just goes to show that we're not really necessarily looking at something authoritative. But the first part's also very important, Joe Pookers and Pavement, because that's a direct quote from John Brandon in the film. And that points directly to the tendency of these kids as looking back as sort of heightening the whole experience as if they were, it was like an escape from New York type scenario where punk rock was happening, right? Right. In some respects, it's true, but in some respects, it's a bit sort of uh, a bit of puffery. And that, that's why right away there's that sensationalism in the title, which makes you sort of question the, the, the veracity of the title in some ways. That's just part of the. Strategy. I'd like to get into your take on a lot of those ingredients that those guests or that those speakers are expanding on. Before yeah. I do that, the yeah. intro to the film is interesting and, and perhaps unintentionally, 
it very much justifies that your movie, more than some, is absolutely an oral history. Yes. So for people who haven't seen it, why don't you tell them how that, I mean, I'm talking the very opening of the film. Yeah. It's handled fascinatingly. Well, the opening of the film, I mean, the actual film itself, I mean, yeah. it opens with, uh, the film was really born out of me finding almost at the time, 35 year old footage of the freezer theater. Uh, my brother was an old hardcore kid in 80, 81, 82, right there when it was all coming uh, together. And he brought a super, my parents super eight camera once to a show, shot this footage, silent black, silent color footage, low light, not terribly great footage, but very mm -hmm. interesting. Almost like a cave painting. It's sort of it, 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 cryptic in that way. It's kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then what is, he just forgot that he shot it. He went off to school, off to university, and he just put it away in some drawer. And after my mom died uh, in 2015, I you know, took it upon myself to start like sort of archiving our whole family history, you know, old images and old home movies. And I got a bunch of home movie footage transferred. And I'm looking through my, uh, you know, the footage as it comes back and up pops this footage that I've never seen before. And I'd seen all this movie footage. Mm -hmm. I knew it inside out. I knew the gestures of aunts and uncles and everything. And suddenly I see this footage and me being a sort of a kid who was steeped in hardcore in the eighties, mid eighties onward, I right away recognized people. I'd see, hey, there's Todd Swalla. Hey, there's Bill Danforth, Skater. Hey, that's Brennan, that's Tesco. I said, holy crap, this is like footage from the freezer that was for me compelling because there were, had been no motion picture footage of the freezer mm -hmm. theater in Detroit. Um, their footage which came later, maybe a half a year later, mm -hmm. but there was no sort of documented evidence of that venue from a standpoint of a time-based medium. And I kind of put it up online for a bit, just asking people around, hey, can somebody help sort of situate this in terms of when this and that? And a whole bunch of people came forth just based upon a YouTube posting. Mm -hmm. so this show happened here. This is, uh, you know, who played. This, these are people, you know, in, in the crowd and you see. And I realized, okay, there's a still a very strongly tightly knit community around this film, mm -hmm. not around this film, around the scene, Detroit scene. And then, so what happened is I just decided, uh, you know, probably within a year or so, maybe I'll just try interviewing people, see what sort of information I can get about this. And I start talking to people and I realized that right then and there, there is a sort of a fascinating sort of relationship that people have with that part of their past and that part of uh, the evolution of Detroit punk, Detroit rock and roll. And it's a story that's never really been told because let's talk about Midwest hardcore for a second. Let's talk about Detroit hardcore. What evidence is there other than a book that did a decent job, two books that did decent jobs. So first one being American hardcore, which did a fine job in book form, did a dog shit job <laughs> as far as the film goes. I'm not a fan. So that was fine. No, because they treated, they treated the Midwest totally like a flyover scene. They, also, they, treat, they also treated 1986 as the end of the world. Yeah, even, I guess, though, even though I'm in, you know, 81, 82 start listening, 83 start going to shows, kid, that still, yeah. pissed, me, that still pissed me the fuck off. So, so they did a terrible job. And of course, that, you know, they had like, you know, Sony was behind it. And this, mm -hmm. so th there's a bit of, you know, um, resent there. And then Tony Rettman put out that book in 2010, 2011, which did a good job mm -hmm. um, as far as, you know, people starting to like collect these stories and whatnot. But then once I started talking to people, I realized there's a lot more animation here when you talk to people in person, on camera, and there's a lot of elements that maybe Tony didn't even cover in the book that started coming forth. And then on top of that, there's a connection. Like, I'm not really, I'm in Windsor, Ontario, which literally like less than two miles from where the Freezer Theater was uh, okay. across the river. Um, but Windsor, Ontario, which is a city that really has nothing much to be proud of, can be very proud of the fact that Detroit hardcore 
in some respects has its origins in Windsor, Ontario, with some okay. shows that happened in early 1881 in the summer of 81 with Minor Threat and earlier shows of the DOA. So there's a bit of that local history component there that's nobody knew about. Really, really nobody knew about. Even in Detroit, they kind of took it for granted. And then the story starts building. You talk to a lot of people and there's a lot of sort of personal connections that people have this scene. You know, there's things like the Bored Youth Kids and that band and their, you know, sort of, you know, their their arc and their, you know, their tragedy associated with them and just, you know, and just the whole evolution and how quickly it happened. And Detroit's an interesting scene. I don't know how it is with California necessarily, but Detroit almost in some respects flared out as quickly as it flourished, the early Detroit scene, because what happened is by 82, late 82, a lot of those original people had moved on. And hardcore was just pretty much a, a means and a method for that point in their life, and they'd moved on. And then a new sort of rollover comes in with new people there, a lot of whom were there for the wrong reasons, and they bring a lot of ne negative elements into it. So Detroit really never had a su sustainable scene in that way. But when it did happen, it was actually sort of really, I mean, in some respect, resonant even now. And the fact that we're talking about it, mm -hmm. the fact that some people still point to some of these bands and sort of efforts. Well, uh, it's interesting. Like you take a, you take a really well-financed documentary, like that uh, four-hour outing that was on the Epics Network. Is that, was that the Iggy Pop one? Well, that's the one Iggy Pop and Varvados are behind it, which I didn't. Really, I, I never watched that. I confess, but I, I find it addicting. But like anything, it 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 cherry picks, right? Yeah. And so when it's Detroit, it's Iggy, it's Wayne Kramer, it's you know, yeah, you know, it's well, people it's like this. And then when it and then when it starts talking bald headed, scrape your knee hardcore, yeah, it diverts to Black Flag and to New York City, you know, yeah. and it's and it's that that's a common path but it makes your movie all the more valuable. But it's, it's also, thank you, but it's also like that whole issue of Detroit being nothing but, and I mentioned this with another um, interview I did with mm -hmm. Damien, um, there's a lot of sacred cows in the history of Detroit rock and roll. Mm -hmm. For some reason, everybody's obsessed with Iggy Pop and Wayne Kramer and the MC5 and the Stooges. But for, as far as I'm concerned, why aren't a band like Negative Reproach and Brannon given the same regard as a band like the MC5? When if you go song for song, there's no question NA is a far better band, far more sort of, you know, in some, in some respects. So, well, so, no, I would say I, it could be argued that I have a religious devotion to all three at this point in my life. But I found <laughs> I found the earlier, the pre-80s stuff after the fact. I found it as an older man. Um, yeah. You talk to a lot of the people that you're mentioning here, and it's an, inter it's an interesting thing. You know, yeah. these others that you mentioned who, who were at times hilarious in there. Yeah. Um, but uh, Tes you know, Tesco, Tesco V is in it. You talk to Brandon quite a bit. You yeah. talk to a lot of lesser known figures. You touch repeatedly down with Ian McKay, I think almost as a narrative device, which at yeah. first made me scratch my head. Then I read a review that framed it really well, which was that when they touched down, it was kind of a, it was kind of a Beatles moment or an evolutionary moment. Yeah. And it came through Detroit. Yes. I, I liked reading that. But rather than hearing from the people who are on the other side of the camera, may I ask you now about some of the same ingredients that you interviewed them about? Yeah. Ask me that again. I'll let me sort of untangle your question. So okay. I yeah, I, I can disappear in a word salad like nobody's business, my friend. Um, I want to ask you about the people and places that yeah. you asked all these notables about. In other words, it's time to flip the camera on you. And I'll start with the cast corridor. Yeah. which prior to watching that was a completely unknown commodity to me and will be alien to most people prior to making the investment in your film. 
Okay. Yeah, the Cass Corridor is a part of Detroit downtown. It's between right downtown Detroit and Wayne State University. Um, historically, the Cass Corridor has always been a sort of bohemian enclave uh, starting in the 50s with jazz and the beatniks and so forth. Um, it's a very poor stretch of land. I mean, the land It's a very poor stretch of the city. Um, in some respects, I, I would say the equivalent might be almost like in New York, you've got like the, the Bowery or Lower East Side, and I don't know what it is in LA, if it's like a Skid Row type thing. But historically, the Cass Quarter has always been a place where um, the student ghetto met the real ghetto. And okay. it was very affordable. And as, as a result of that, the Cass Quarter, which is probably literally about a mile wide by about three, four miles long, an area. Okay. It's always been very uh, a very permissible space for people to be, um, an on, uh, for an enclave for artistic sort of endeavors. So whether, you know, people are down there doing free jazz or whether they're doing, um, you know, for a while there, the MC5 were down there in the late 60s. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of things like obviously performance art, poetry, because nobody would bother with you. I mean, the, the local mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, population was uh, had, had more greater concerns I mean in terms of bothering with these sort of mostly white kids who are down here just making music and making uh, you know doing odd you know sense you know nonsense I mean creative nonsense sort of things as far as they're concerned it was a place that allowed it to happen because there was no oversight there was nobody there's no certainly were no cops most of the time there and there's certainly no neighbors complaining about it being too loud at two in the morning so it was a place that a lot of these things could happen and could flourish the hardcore scene found its way down there in 81 only because up until that point most they were only playing bar bar shows and most of their audiences were underage and if they couldn't sneak in they decided okay we got to find a place to put uh do shows with these kids and granted they found a place down in the corridor that was effectively like a, you know, uh, an unlicensed, illegitimate venue, uh, four walls and a floor and, and part of a ce part of a ceiling, uh, often no electricity. And these kids would kind of create a scene to cater to what they wanted to see. And that was, in, in that respect, is very synergistic between all, all the parties the early, in the corridor because these kids, anybody who went down to the cast corridor to see a hardcore show mm -hmm. in late 81, early 82 was there because they wanted to be, be a part of something or build a community. And the corridor, back to your questions, historically the corridor, corridor was the sort of place you could do that. It also kind of created a bit of, uh, right away, there was a, um, but the fact that you were there and that you probably sacrificed some aspect of your you know comfort comfortable life and well-being and safety to be there meant that you wanted to be there so it was almost like a, a, a sort of a, an initiation if you were you know if you had enough balls to come out of cast order to see a hardcore show then you were there you're part of us you're part of our, our crew our family and you're welcome and so in that way it was great because it kind of filtered on a lot of the tourists anybody who was there was determined corridor could make it happen only because there was no oversight it was in some respect lawless like an empty slate open book people come down there do do the fuck they want that sort of thing i think a lot of cities have an area like that a lot of times that's where the punk rock or the diy venue will find its home yeah but at least to listen to the people who speak in the film cast corridor sounds like a fucking dmz it, yeah. it was in, in some respects i think some of the people heighten it a bit that's why the title comes in dope as far as john brandon's concerned some of the other people that's all there was down there was this like dope hookers and payment drugs crime prostitution and just you know tough hardness this is like a sort of shitty existence 
But some people say, no, it wasn't really that. If you really wanted that, that was maybe a few blocks over or a, a half a mile south and nobody ventured there anyways because they knew they wouldn't last and so forth. But the kids were close enough for it to capture their imagination. I mean, put it this way, they weren't at a, a VFW hall or a Moose Lodge up in Sterling Heights or some sort of vanilla right. cell. Right? That's pretty that's well not, illustrated. That's hey, let's not talk about, you yeah. know, you, you mentioned it a couple of times just real quickly, but let's, let's give some detail on the Freezer Theater. Yeah. Okay. Well, Freezer Theater was a venue that had been around uh, as an entity since the mid-late 70s. It was run by uh, a group called the Dramatic Research Company of Detroit, which were a bunch of ex-hippies who ran experimental performance art space. And like any ex-hippies, they, they kind of give everybody the benefit of the doubt. and They believe in, you know, human goodness mm-hmm. and whatnot. So <laughs> these, these uh, they had done some like Rock Against Racism, uh, had a bit of a franchise in Detroit that did shows there in okay. the very early 80s. I think Subhumans, um, the Canadian Subhumans played there in 1980, did a Rock Against Racism. Uh, DOA did a show in uh, not in the quarter, but nearby. Uh, so there was a bit of music going on there, but what happened was, I believe, Corey Rusk, Larissa, and John Brandon approached uh, the people at the freezer, these, these benign hippies, nice people, good people, you know, and I said, hey, we want to put on some shows here, and they're like, sure, do do what you want, here's the key, right, uh, you lock up when you're done, right, uh, you know, and they did it, they started doing it, and it just became this place that was sort of self-managing or self um uh, policing and whatnot and it was like a raw space too so first like there's this great story in the film like todd swallis the first time they played there there was no stage there's a bunch of plywood and a bunch of pallets right you can't play, you can't play drums on, on plywood and pallets because everything's fucking moving and, it's, and, I, and right. you know people are falling through the stage so what happens is then the kids sort of get together someone brings a pile of wood someone brings some tools someone brings a saw they build a stage Mm-hmm. And so they, they sort of built this little venue and this little community that was, and keep in mind, I mean, a lot of places, and it's certainly Detroit, punk rock very often happens in licensed establishments, right? legitimate establishments, right? And that's why some people try to make the comparison that, hey, what happened? Because even like in the 90s, the whole garage rock thing happened down in the cast corridor. And people say, isn't there a comparison there? I say, well, no, not really, because they happened at places that were liquor serving establishments that were sort of venues uh, with licenses and liability insurance yeah, licenses liabilities all this and that as far as the freezer goes none of that existed they didn't they didn't have power for the last half of the life of the freezer so they brought in power from the neighboring pizza shop you know with extension cords and it was just a great place and a couple of big shows happened there um you know uh the minor threat was the end show where it just turned into an epic sort of brawl and the place got shuttered after that but before then the Misfits came in, did a massive show there in a place that literally is like 1,500 square feet, mm-hmm. packing 400 kids in there. So it's just like, there's a lot of sort of like, a lot of sort of legendary sort of, you know, spontaneous things that did happen there. But it happened all by the effort and the, the handiwork of, the, of all the kids who were there and involved. Like everybody who was there had some stake in what was going on. All right. And what was its eventual undoing? I mean, besides the minor threat show, wasn't there an attempt at a secondary venue? Or well, there wasn't. A, there's a venue up up the street, like probably two or three blocks um, north of the freezer, uh, was a space that John, uh, Brandon, and Larissa had where they'd rehearsed for NA and, and L7. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, after the freezer shuttered, they moved up the street and did some shows there through the end of '82. But that was also another illegitimate space. 
But by then what happened was it was starting to catch on. So you started getting a lot of the skinhead element. You started getting a lot of, you know, people being stupid with booze and walking in and out of the place with big forties and stuff. And right. so that started drawing attention to it by virtue of cops and mm -hmm. neighbors dealing with like, you know, and so then that, after that, it was kind of the end. It was the end of the first, the, the first evolutionary sort of phase of Detroit uh, hardcore. And then it just became a scene of, of club shows and hall shows. Well, your personalities were well chosen. The segments are well timed. Thank um, you. As as something that's not drowning in, in in a sea of grainy VHS footage, but a ton of a ton a ton of archival flyering and fantastic photography, it yeah. moves along very nicely. Um, <coughs> I recommend to everybody that, the, that that they do the work, go to the site, and watch it. And I would like to end this interview later, a few minutes yes. from now, with yeah. you giving as much information about how to do so as possible. Absolutely. But now let's talk a little bit of philosophy. Sure. Um, when we were kids, uh, I remember the only hardcore movie or punk rock movie I had on tape. You know, I'm not going to say The Decline or something like that because it's yeah. more like I was more like studded belt punk rock, and I'm talking about as things started to evolve into '81, '82, '83. Right. Yeah. The only thing I had that was in actual movie format was Another State of Mind. Yes. You know, the BYO doc, right? Yes. Yes. And fast forward thirty, maybe closer to forty years. Yes. Hardcore docs are not that rare a beast. No. Um, I, to, to, to a doc like yours about Detroit, absolutely. But hardcore docs in general, first off, where do you think that appetite comes from? And do you see it as important? Well, I think what it is is that, um, do, I mean, documentation in itself is important. Um, you know, accurate document, uh, documentation is even more important. I, I think it's, it's a service, everything almost hardcore documentaries are almost exclusively going to be niche and localized in terms of interest right mm -hmm. so here's a documentary on the minneapolis scene there's a documentary on the austin scene you know there's a documentary on the tough new york scene you know this sort of thing this so they all have these sort of niche sort of like areas of interest um i'm no different in that respect i mean i'm handling obviously a detroit midwest hardcore scene what might be a little different from what I'm doing is that the Midwest has never, never been regarded as being a sort of a relevant scene nationally. Mm -hmm. like Ian says in the film, it might not have been a sort of a major scene, but it was a very much an energy center that the rest of the country could connect with because knowing mm -hmm. that there was, there was an audience there and there's an energy there. So I think, but back to your question with the philosophy, I think right now, a lot of this information, like, and that's where the film starts with this old home movie footage amongst which I've, found the um the freezer footage was we tend to forget and this is something very obvious that we are talking something that's nearing ancient history literally because in in the film rob michaels bored youth singer great guy great articulate man mm -hmm. says something very interesting very poignant he says when they were doing what they were doing in 1980-81 down in the cast quarter down in the freezer theater with midwest hardcore they were already 12 years on from the summer of love keep that in mind 12 years on right. and we are now talking about something 40 years on right so you, you get a sense of like wow this is all belongs to the distant past but in some respects that distance past distant past still feels incredibly modern and relevant and resonant today in terms of its influence the diy i mean obviously the music and whatever you know what it all led to with things that are now just big and normal for most people well, how much this was a part of it well, I've got a counterpoint for you, which which occurs to occur to me while you were talking, and that is 
you're when it was the big debate, and I'm talking this is maybe six years after the Sex Pistols. There's already yeah. this raging debate in the underground community whether or not punk was dead. Yeah. <laughs> there's this, always this obsession with when we could put the RIP on, right? Yeah. Well, the fact that the earliest stages of hardcore punk are there's now an obsessive documentation of it going on, and the fact that there is always new music, and the fact that a lot of the newest punk rock and hardcore is influenced by the oldest punk rock and hardcore, I think maybe serves to validate this as a genre alongside blues, jazz, rock and absolutely, roll, absolutely. as yeah. something that's not supposed to have a shelf life. It can have yeah. an evolution and it can have a golden age, but I don't think it's temporary. No. I think one thing is keep in mind when people talk about punk being dead back in the early 80s, or mm -hmm. they're talking about punk as a sort of a, a major label sort of construct, a media construct. Mm -hmm. Okay, once the once EMI lost interest, once Polydor lost interest in these bands, suddenly these bands didn't matter anymore. They didn't exist. No, but these bands started something. They just demonstrated something that mm -hmm. people picked up on and continued. But what I think is interesting about hardcore, and I say this sort of um, bittersweet in a way, is that you have to understand, and I, I feel embarrassed even mentioning to you this, because you're in a band and whatnot, you were and are, is that it's a transitional sort of genre of music for a lot of people who are involved. It's something you come into, you do to its maximum, you sort of establish the mold, and then you move on, you outgrow. It's by nature something that needs to be outgrown as you move on to other things. That is my take on, on hardcore, sort of, it's essentially something that has to run its course for the individual. I think if you keep repeating the same hardcore, and if yes. you keep creating something that is clearly identifiable as being in sync with your, you know, junior and senior year of high school, your yes. first two years of college, you're doing yeah. something that's toxic and that's a book report on a life you're not living now. Yeah. On the other hand, to create music that is constantly evolving to challenge yourself on subject matter and to find relevance if you're a middle-aged man, sing about middle-aged life. If you're yeah. a divorcee, sing about loneliness and rejection, yes. then you're still doing something vital and something crucial yes. that is painfully rare. Yep. But I think and then at that time, that's why I understand, like, um, in, in some respects, in, 80, in 81, 82, 83, I understand why the negative approach became the Laughing Hyenas, why the Necros became Aerosmith, why Black Flag, <laughs> became, why Black Flag became whatever, you know. You understand because they they kind of have sort of you know they, they've kind of expressed all they can within the parameters of what they started out doing mm -hmm. in retrospect i think though what they started out doing is fascinating and is what sort of uh resonates still today mm -hmm. um you know i i music's not been a big part of my life for the last 20 25 years but it's always been a part of my life but not mm -hmm. a big part of life but even now i listen to a lot of this music that i at the time, I thought I outgrew and left behind by the time I turned 20. And I listen to it now, and it's still great rock and roll. Yeah. With a different skill set, maybe, in a different set of circumstances, it's still a great rock and roll. And that's the one thing people have to understand it as. Revolutionary in the fact that nobody sort of allowed you to do it. You did it, you know, sort of on your own terms. But that's the thing is, in, in respect, but back to hardcore as a form, as a genre, I think it's great that it continues. It's new for somebody always. And there's always people who are making it a little more challenging for themselves and whatnot. Mm -hmm. The fact that some of the people who at the time decided not to continue making it challenging for themselves is mm -hmm. okay too. And that's the thing I think that, you know, varying well, degrees. 
What's that? <laughs> to varying degrees. To varying degrees. And I think, it, but now it is like you were saying, it is alongside Jews, black, I mean, uh, blues, jazz, hip hop, rap, rock. Mm -hmm. It's just a genre now. It's a market. It's a commodity mm -hmm. form. And it's just, you know, and that's where it's become. And I think it's a lost a bit of its sort of, in that respect, it's, it's revolutionary kind of quality. It's wildness. I have this thing. theory that the most yeah. revolutionary space, the most revolutionary spaces in this music would probably efficiently evade the radars of a couple of middle-aged men sitting around, sitting around doing it, doing a nighttime zoom, you know, <laughs> know. That, that, that there, that, that, that there could be, that I, I'm certain there's a, there's a world out there flying this flag that, that far exceeds my understanding. Yeah. There is, there is, and, and you know what? One thing I'll just I'll just wrap up my part by saying, I I can I'm sort of I'm controlling the streaming on my film right now because in lieu of distribution and with the pandemic and whatnot, it's the only really way to do it. But I look at who watches this film and where they watch it. It's fascinating the fact that I'm dealing with people in Australia and Brazil, in Japan and Moscow and in Sweden, and you know places that I it must mean something to these people. And, and, mm -hmm. and I, I could never underestimate that, even though I might be a little exhausted by it or tired or a little sort of worn down or disinterested in some level. It's still something eye opening and revolutionary for some people to encounter it. And I think that's beautiful. That's great. I think it's true. Yeah. Um, let's uh, do that. This is this is a little bit short. It's satisfying yeah. to me. Um, I got one subject I want to touch on and then I want to I want to get to the issue of distribution and how to view the film. Yes. Um, we sort of touched on this a little bit already, yeah. But the, the, you know, there's always been a coastal preoccupation in the nation's understanding of hardcore punk rock. Yes, and it either lands in Los Angeles around Black Flag and the Circle Jerks, and then whatever, and the Descendants, and you know, yeah. whatever happened for the for the following ten years, or it deifies what went on in New York and this sort of Bowery rough kid yeah. image, a lot yeah. of which is valid and a lot of which is birthed in a legendary venue. Yeah. But it's bizarre, and I think the one advantage to film and the popularity of these documentaries are it's bizarre that Chicago doesn't get its day in court, that Detroit doesn't get its day in court. You know, you refer to Brandon several times during this interview. Everybody yeah. watching this interview is going to know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yet it doesn't, it almost seems like these personalities raised, but these Midwest cities did not, you know? I, yeah, I think, you know, the coastal preoccupation has to do, I think, on some level with the fact that la california maybe not san francisco is also a major scene at that time definitely yeah but la and new york they're also major sort of media markets so there's they are like there's always going to be like a and r people floating around and looking at things and noticing things um washington is is if you want to talk about organic scenes i can never consider i mean in some respects um new york i hate to say maybe la as organic as Washington DC was or Detroit was because I think what happened was in LA you still had there was a infrastructure there for bands to sort of perform develop find an audience you know whether it's the whiskey or whatever the clubs were well it's it's such a populous era that things existed on more than one level yeah I mean but there was always like there was always like there was even a venue for like for even you know the most odd ball outlier type thing there was a venue for that in detroit there weren't venues and i mean i can't talk about chicago but even in like dc there were venues for the discord bands they did madame zorgan and then whatever you know hall shows they put together 
but that's that's the interesting thing the preoccupation new york is a whole sort of you know scene where there also was an infrastructure of spaces where these bands can play i mean i don't know who did hall shows in new york you do you, nobody does hall shows in new york right, right. probably right, right. no no yeah. I, I in my head there's this this progression of max's kansas city cbgb's exactly. and, and, and then by the time by the time it was hoodie core people yeah. would make the train commute out to the anthrax and things like that yeah. that's the thing yeah so i think what it is to answer your question is what those flyover states michigan chicago mm -hmm. illinois not so much cleveland or anything but uh but even in some respects dc these places the people had to create the scene to uh be able to in, uh, you know indulge in it they had to be a par participants to actually sort of to watch to be to be uh, uh, spectators to be witnesses you have to be a witness and a participant and that was i think mean, that's that's sort of it's a lot of hard work but it's not terribly sexy and it's not very telegenic from a standpoint of the media or coverage concern mm -hmm. um and that's why i mean you look at chicago i mean chicago's had a few great bands you know articles of faith effigies fantastic band mm -hmm. but they were they were not in a city associated with you know rock and roll with right. culture, product, the production of culture so I think that's maybe one of the things, and it, it is, it's no less like applicable to punk than it is to other uh, forms of maybe music. You, you got to be in the places where there's the most eyes on you to see you know, before you get noticed. And I think hardcore is probably also not, but it's a little different now with internet and obviously, I mean, it's probably internet, but with interconnectivity is that all, all eyes are everywhere. So, and that is something that's a little easier now. But I think hopefully that makes sense. It made sense. Yeah. Um, so 800 foot gorilla for for a guy who dropped a film within the last year you had to drop your movie you had to drop your movie during the pandemic yeah Colleges? um yeah well do you want me to just say what i gotta say i gotta say yeah. this it's a mixed blessing because um the film was supposed to come out in april launch at uh detroit's got a big daily uh the daily papers has a, a annual festival documentary festival it was going to launch okay. there in april Third Man was going to put on a soundtrack. Uh, all that went in the toilet with the with the virus. Right. And I decided that, you know, I was supposed to do a road show with it. I was supposed to go to Brooklyn, to D.C., to Pittsburgh, to Toronto. All that, you know, obviously didn't, didn't happen. Um, and I thought that, okay, you know what, I could sit around indefinitely and wait for uh, an opportunity to go live with this. But... Mm -hmm. That can still happen because I think once once the film is out, maybe people have ingested it. It might mm -hmm. become something they might be more interested in revisiting with a, an accompaniment of of guests and this and that. But I had to self distribute at this point in time, and that's mm -hmm. something that is just a reality. I think with uh, with filmmakers because there's no tangible venues right now. No. So I and I I, I elected to control it by through using a streaming service. Um, eventually, it might get dumped onto the Amazon Prime, the Hulu, the Google Play. But I think once you get to that point, it's like pissing into the ocean. You're like, who's going to find you, right? I don't know. There's a lot of geeks like me, a lot of self-medicating old fools on the couch who watch <laughs> late night, who watch late night music documentaries ad infinitum. Yeah. Don't 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 underestimate us as a market, sir. Well, I think in six months I, I'll see you in that in that sort of you know we'll we'll, we'll see. Amazon Prime is the first place I looked for it before you and I were talking. I was aware of the film before you and I you got yeah. this back and forth going. Yeah, I think with Am but the other thing is this purely if for all the like filmmakers out there, uh, people who are want to make films, I think what happened is self streaming. It's hard to find your audience. I'm doing decently, Grant. I'm not doing mm -hmm. bad by no means. But the problem is I control the revenue at this point in time, which is very important. If I hand it over to someone like an Amazon Prime or Google Play, you get residual checks. You don't know 
you have no control over it anymore. And that's there's a weird way. perversion to everything that we've just talked about for the last half hour, ending yeah. up ending up going through the tunnel of Bezos anyway. But you know. <laughs> yeah. well, listen, why don't you yeah. give the actual hard details on how okay. to? On that if you I don't mean as the... difficult, but as in concrete, yeah, details on how if, to watch the film. If you want to see the film right now, it's very easy. You know, the couple of thousand people have already done this. So you, www.DetroitHardcoreMovie.com. Go there, right at the top of the webpage. There's a the button there says, watch it now, buy a ticket. Right now it's 10 bucks. Eventually it's going to go down a bit. You mm -hmm. click that, it takes you to a streaming service. If you're tech savvy, you connect your computer to your TV with an HDMI cable. You could sit back, like you're saying, put your feet up and watch it on a big screen TV. If not, you could watch it on your desktop or laptop or whatever. But www.DetroitHardcoreMovie.com, and then we take care of business from that point forward. I watched uh, it. I watched it on my full-size TV, and sir, I find combining cereal and milk complicated, so it's an easy <laughs> thing to do. Um, well, listen, anything, anything else you want to make sure you touch on before we move on, uh, sir? Yeah, I think, you know what... Um, uh, there's so much there there's a lot to talk about i think for me it's something that uh you know he, someone said you know reached out to me, mike gitter I, I knew him very you know incidentally back in the day i, he talked, said, to him, I talked to him last night <laughs> last night he said something very he said, good to hear from you again i haven't heard from i took pictures of his band back in the late 80s when they played mm -hmm. cbs and he was saying this is weird how now there's so much of these people from that era are coming forth with like books, movies, mm -hmm. um, music in some cases. And I just said, you know what? It's because it's probably in some ways, it was probably the last, you know, great piece of evidence of, 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 of a scene being created from uh, very little for its own sake, for its own needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think even people talk about early hip hop and this and that, that's that's fine too. But that also immediately almost had an industrial sort of involvement from the in terms mm -hmm. of the media, media complex involvement with that. Hardcore, hardcore punk eighties, and like Ian says this in the film, it took almost ten years before the major labels really took it seriously. Mm -hmm. You know before they started like really signing bands and putting putting any sort of and when uh, they did it didn't last no it didn't last and then whatnot and some people argue that okay hey all this led to nirvana or something like that which is kind of true and you know in some respects except there are well the thing no see when nobody i take exception with that not with your statement or with their statement yeah but the context is off people don't understand that nirvana was plucked from this space those are punk space. Kids. our space our space yeah. here yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they weren't they weren't created as this entity that they became dubbed as. No, you know? I mean when no. I first saw the, you know, I first saw them. I saw them in a Long Beach bar called Bogarts, and I think Tad played over them, and Billy Rubin's band opened. You know, and Billy <laughs> Rubin's a haven-headed, you know, camo-wearing, chaos-minded little punk rocker. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't this separate entity that retroactively it's been dubbed as this separate evolution, and it wasn't. No, it's it not. Local, no. It was a localized punk scene, with yeah. a particular sound, which got exploited. Which got exploited by yeah, sort of like you know uh, label interests and, and that sort of. But the, the the point I'm trying to I was making is that people tend to forget that residents of this uh, that early scene mm -hmm. today. I mean, I was telling someone a very straight laced sort of dude who has no relationship with 
punk rock at all as a musician, but he doesn't know shit. And it says, you know, you have to think, you know, you talk about, like we talk about Nirvana, you even talk about a band like Metallica, how much of an influence punk rock was on that band right. early on Absolutely. and how it pushed them to a certain sort of form of expression. And then you go later, you get the Green Days, of course, and then you get the Rage Against Machines, and of course, then you get like the White Stripe thing. And all this, all this has this element of 80s punk, American hardcore punk in it, but hardcore american hardcore punk was not something that was easily marketable at the time to be sort of developed mm -hmm. but eventually someone came along and said okay we're going to pick and choose some aspects of it and we're going to create music that suddenly people are getting acclimatized to we're going to speed things up a bit we're going to let things we're going to let people go crazy on the dance floor now and we're people are going to get accustomed to seeing that and then more people get comfortable with it and it gets bigger and this and that but nobody ever really goes back to say hey how how big of a part was were the were the was were the circle jerks or black flag a part of this? A lot of people I who are exposed that. who are exposed to the current mutation are shocked when they're exposed to the source. Yes, and the source for them is as alien as anything, but they just know the sort of the resonant influence. Right. And that's the thing is that one thing is very important here. And I think not that my film really is gonna be a revelation to anybody, but it's gonna point to the fact that hey, there were things happening either while you were sleeping or before you were born that really kind of made it a lot easier for people 10, 15, 20 years down the line, a lot easier. And that's, I think, one of the things I, I want to say, we're preaching the converted because we're both, you know, sort of. Old punk mid, farts. Yeah. But, but you know what, but for uh, someone's going to hear this for the first time and think about that. I says, yeah, something did happen between the Ramones and Nirvana. I think you know? one of the reasons that I watch documentaries yeah. on infinitum now, and I watch, I watch endless hours of, because I'm trying to understand my own youth. I understand the roots of it better now than I did while it was happening. Yeah, when you're in the th when you're in the throes and the sort of the heat of it, mm -hmm. you really you just don't understand like where this is going or why we're doing what we're doing and whatnot. Right. And that's the sort of fascinating thing. I think the Detroit kids. That's what I deal with in that way. These kids weren't aware that they were setting a, a template. They, they had right. no clue about that at all. You know, even right. something as simple as Tesco Weed putting out Touch and Go, fanzine label. He had no sort of foresight in terms of how this is going to be sort of, you know, linger forward. He communicates that pretty well in the movie. He does. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here. Your voices were chosen very well and laid Thank out you. very well, as were the contrast between their perspectives. Yeah. At times, people are very real about things, about tragic events, yeah. about violent events. Um, it sort of comes out, you know, there's no there's no polish on the nails in, in your talk, and I commend you for no. that. There's also no. no false heroism um, other than that, which you identify right there in the title. Um, <laughs> and there was something so, else. Uh, there's something else I want to add, Dan. Yeah. There's also, I, I didn't want to self-censure because the film indulges with a lot of humor that might be a little too raw or insensitive for, you know, the, today's sort of climate, political climate, social climate. But I let these people talk. You know, if Tesco... It wants to talk about tooling for anus. Let him talk about tooling for anus. We're not going to apologize for it, but he it will it will be challenged on camera. You know what if I mean? You, like, if yeah, you were like, to represent the behavior of the '80s as filtered through the norms of the 2020s, you'd, you'd be creating a false document. <laughs> yeah, you would, absolutely. And people are always, you know, if they if they can't handle that, you know, they can change the channel. Of course, that's that. But you can't you can't hide that sort of that you can't hide the documentation of the sensibilities and judgments of youths from that point in time because it wasn't necessarily 
uh, malicious or sort of harmful. It was just maybe a little insensitive or a little sort of immature. But it wasn't sort of, uh, in some ways, it wasn't uh, hurt, you know, and sorry, what's the word? It's, it wasn't really malignant in, in that way. It was yeah, just agreed. Yeah. And that's the thing. But the film lets people not have to apologize for that. It's a warts and all, it's a warts and all talk, which is why I was happy to do, yeah, do this episode. That's, well why, well, that's why I loved when you and I got to talking about it. Well, listen, that is episode 32. Otto Buey, thank you a ton, sir. Thank you, Dan O'Mahony. I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.